If you would uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28, that's where we're going to be looking together. There'll be some words up on the screen as we go through, but it's always great to have it in your own Bibles. And uh, in the end of Matthew's Gospel, uh, we're seeing the marching orders for the church. And one of the great things that I've got to experience over the last couple of months is to go around to a bunch of different churches who do things in very different ways, but we're all basically doing the same thing. We're doing what Jesus asked his people to do. And in all the different flavours and all the different methods and all the different places and all the different, in a sense, personalities of church that you come across, they've got to be about this one thing if they are truly a church of Jesus Christ, if they are a part of the kingdom that he is building. So we're going to read God's marching orders for the church from Matthew 28. And as we read that together, um, as I said, if you want to read that in your own Bible, that would be great. Um, Otherwise, follow along on the screen. There we go. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Fairly familiar passage, isn't it, for many of us? Uh, Most of us would have seen that at some point. And very often as we come to those stages in a church's life, like now as I dive back into my role after a couple of months away, at those moments when we're thinking, okay, what are we supposed to be about? This is often a guiding passage for us because it is, I think, the most succinct expression of what church is and what church is meant to be about. And it calls us to something pretty extraordinary. And I hope as you read this that its familiarity will not cloud your curiosity to ask for yourself today, well, what does this mean for me? And maybe you are seeing this for the first time, in which case we'll get to explore it in a fresh way together. But maybe you're very familiar with it and you're kind of already mentally switching off a little bit. Yeah, I know that's what we're supposed to be doing. Um, But this is called the Great Commission for a reason. Uh, When you sign up to become a follower of Jesus, this is the commission you receive. This is what your life is to be about. All of life, not just some of it, because as Jesus points out, uh, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him to instruct us in this. There's nothing left out of our lives that he doesn't want to be in charge of and direct us in and be present with us in. Watching TV, going to work coming to church, riding on public transport, whatever it might be that you are doing is somehow a part of the broader mission of your life, the authority of Jesus over your life and the presence of Jesus in your life. Um, It's a real temptation to reduce the Great Commission to certain activities. Yes, we know the church is meant to be about making disciples of all nations, so that's why we have Sunday services and we have uh, Wednesday Little Groovers and Thursday Connect and Friday Youth and we have Bible studies and we have uh, special uh, outreach services at Easter time and Christmas. We do all these kind of things in order to achieve this. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's why all of those things happen. That needs to be why they happen. Otherwise, why would they happen? But it's not all that this requires. This is about who we are and what our lives revolve around and what our lives produce. So I want us to have a look at it in a fresh way today. And in order to do that, 
I really believe that we don't um, kind of have the capacity in ourselves to just read God's mind and know what he wants for us. We actually need to invite him to reveal himself to us. So again, I just want to pray very briefly as now that we have the passage in front of us, we ask God to speak to us through it. Will you pray with me? God, as we look at what is known as the Great Commission, as we think about what it means for our lives, we want to invite you to reveal your good truth to us. We want to remind ourselves by faith that we believe that living your way is the best way. And so there is something that is, in a sense, self-interested about our time. We want to know how to experience the abundant life that is only possible for us in Jesus. We want to know how to be close to you and experience the goodness of that. But similarly, we want to know how to be obedient to you. We want to know how you would have us do the things that you have prepared in advance for us to do. So God, would you do both of those things for us today? Would you help us to experience your presence, experience your blessings and be thankful for it, just as Jay reminded us a few moments ago? And would you also remind us of the calling that you've given us and what it requires of us to do as we spend our time together today and as we move out of here into our week? These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at this passage called the Great Commission, I don't want to dive straight into what the commission itself is, that command, these are the things that you are supposed to do. Before we get to that, if we're going to really unpack it and understand what it means for us today, we've got to deal with the other things that Matthew, as he's being led by the Holy Spirit, is revealing to us in this passage. And there's two things that come out very strongly before or around the Great Commission here. One is, who are the people who are being talked to? Who are the ones who are being commissioned? Who are the ones receiving this instruction? And the other aspect that Matthew wants to reveal to us is, who's the person giving the commission? Who's the one who is actually entrusting those people to do something for him? And what Matthew says about the people who are being commissioned and the one who is doing the commissioning are really, really important and helpful for us. And we've got to have that as a foundation before we even start to think about, well, okay, what should I do in response? So today, we're going to focus on those two things. Who are these people being commissioned? And how can we kind of learn from that? And who is the person who is doing the commissioning and what does that mean for us? And then, God willing, next week we'll get into some some really practical stuff about, okay, thinking about my life today, thinking about our setting today and the world that we live in and the culture that we're a part of, what does this even look like for us? Well, let's dive in. Who are the people being commissioned? Well, in the first couple of verses there, we'll focus in on them. The 11 disciples travelled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. So what do we need to know about the people who have been given this really lofty life mission? Well, they're disciples. What does the word disciple mean? Because like all words, its meaning can shift and change over time. So what did these guys understand? And as Matthew has told the story over the previous 28 chapters or so, what do we understand from these guys that it meant for them to be called disciples? See, the word itself just means to be a student, to be a learner. Um, And many of you have kind of been there or are currently in that place where you rock up to uni or you rock up to school or or you watch online classes about things you're interested in. And so you're, you're taking in content, you're learning. But what's the kind of learning that is uh, in mind when the word disciples is being used. It's not just that they've rocked along with all those crowds and seen miracles and listened to teaching and kind of gone, hmm, okay, right, what do I understand about this? These guys have gone another step. They were called to more than just observing in the same way that all those crowds did. They were called to follow Jesus, 
to be with him, to, to walk the paths he walked, to converse, to give things a go, to succeed sometimes and fail sometimes, to reflect together, to have Jesus speak into their thoughts and their attitudes and their actions. This was real life-on-life life learning. It required them actually to be uh, willing to leave behind uh, their normal place of residence, uh, the things that their life revolved around, their occupations, all those sorts of things. Not that those things weren't a factor in their lives anymore. They continued to live in some of the same towns. They continued to relate to some of the same people. They went fishing sometimes. Some of them had been fishermen already. So it's not as though all those things just stopped. But everything about their life now was rearranged. And it was rearranged around following Jesus. Full-time. Not a part-time gig. Wherever he went, whatever he said, that shaped the way they lived their lives. And because of that, their lives started to be really, really different. Who they were as people started to be really, really different. What their lives did in the lives of other people, the impact they had on the world, started to be really, really different. But they had to let Jesus completely reshape their lives in order to do this. Those are the people that Jesus is talking uh, to. But notice it's plural, not singular. So there's, there's a community of disciples. And so being a disciple of Jesus wasn't just about, well, this is the impact on my life. They're suddenly doing life with other people. They're in community. And it's not community based on the fact that they all love basketball or they all go to the same synagogue or they're all in the same extended family or they all grew up in the same town or they all like the same kind of music or anything that might otherwise kind of clump people together. Their following, their community that they experience is based on this one thing, that they are following Jesus. Nothing else. There was no other tie. Their personalities, completely different. Their preferences, different. Their political ideas, different. Their places of origin, different. Their, 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 um, uh, their preferences for all kinds of different things were so diverse. But following Jesus is what brought them together. And that was enough. And sometimes we um, tend to rely on a whole bunch of different things to, to decide whether I click with somebody or not. Do I like the like same kind of movies, similar sort of humour, same hobbies, you know, shared history? You know, for disciples, it's that one thing. And yes, some of the other things might be there too, but it's this one thing that builds community. We're following Jesus. And that one thing is enough. But there's something else about uh, this group that stands out in verse 16. They are disciples, individually and together as a group, but there's 11 of them. And as Matthew writes his story, that number is meant to be jarring. The 11 disciples. What's he been saying up until now? Yeah, the 12. 12 disciples. But there's 11 on this occasion. One of them has opted out. And, and it's not just about whether that person was physically present because there's been plenty of times over the last few years where Jesus has sent them off in, in groups or individually to do different things in different places at different times. So the fact that they're called the 11 here isn't just about who's here in the moment, in the place, but spiritually, relationally, as a group, uh, there's one who has opted out of that, who is not on the journey anymore. Um, and that was Judas, of course. He betrayed Jesus. He betrayed his companions. He went from being somebody who, at least on the outside and to all appearances, was part of them to somebody who now obviously was against them. And imagine the grief they carried when the one who was supposed to be on the journey of following Jesus, as Albert pointed out earlier, actually had another influence going on in his life, which ended up controlling his life. 
and he went down a, a deeply destructive path. I can imagine that they cared about this guy. They'd shared their lives with him. Imagine feeling the weight of what had happened to Judas, what Judas's forsaking of Jesus meant to him, let alone what it meant to Jesus and let alone what it meant to the other 11 guys. So as they came to the mountain in Galilee, there would have been some grief that they were carrying. And I wonder if there was also some guilt because they'd been sharing life. Why didn't we pick up on some stuff? And maybe why didn't I say some things or why didn't I do this? I wonder if there was some of that going on because I, I don't know about you, but if you've shared life with somebody who's made destructive decisions and gone down some really harmful paths, yeah, you feel the sadness of that, but sometimes you also think, you know, what, what part should I have played? What part did I play? So that would have been in all kinds of different uh, states. And then you get to 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. They're all there as worshippers of Jesus. And Matthew doesn't tell us the story. In other Gospels, uh, we, we find out that Jesus, by this time, has already shown them convincing proofs of his resurrection. They know he's, he's resurrected. He's alive. And, and so I think when Matthew talks about the doubt, I don't know that he's talking about, is this really Jesus? Could this really be him? I think he's talking about all those other doubts that they might have had. For example... Uh, Jesus had called these guys to be part of building his kingdom, right? That was the whole thing of what the disciples were about. The kingdom of heaven is here and they're getting to be part of building it. In fact, some of them are so excited, they're saying things like, hey, you know, can we sit at your right and on your left as we kind of rule over this kingdom together? They expect the kingdom to be coming and then Jesus leads them into Jerusalem and all the people are saying, Hosanna to the son of David and it feels like, man, the kingdom's here and then within a week, bang, the king's on the cross and he's crucified and they're scattered. And having been called by Jesus to be part of building his kingdom and have, having seen what happened to Jesus himself when he was in Jerusalem, I wonder if they're doubting, you know, well, if that's what they do to Jesus, this incredible saviour king, what, have, what chance have any of us got of establishing a kingdom? Who's going to listen to us? Who's going to follow us if that's what they did to Jesus? And man, we know what he's like. So I wonder if those are the sorts of doubts that they might have been feeling. And there might have been all kinds of other ones as well. But regardless of what the exact doubts were, this passage is showing us they're not all in the same place. They're not all in the same place in terms of where their faith is at, where their confidence is at. Um, what, what's to stop me from being another Judas? I mean, he was one of us. Maybe I could stuff up that badly. How do I know the, the depths of my own heart? I wonder what other kind of doubts and fears were bubbling around in these guys. But that's the beauty of what Matthew's doing when he describes who these 11 disciples are. Because he's being very real about their frailty. And he's being very real as Jesus gives this great commission that is going to change the world. It doesn't actually rely on these guys. We don't have a great commission because we're so great that we can achieve it. We have a great commission because Jesus is so great that he can achieve it through ordinary people just like us. See, it's not about who was receiving the commission. It's actually about who was giving the commission. That's the single most important thing about the work that we've been called to. Not that we've been called to it. It's about the one who's given us that work to do. And what do we find out about the person who's giving the great commission in this passage? Well, he says, before he tells them to do anything, 
recognizing this kind of ragtag group of followers who have genuinely allowed him to be the center of their lives, but have got no hope of achieving what needs to be done over the next however many centuries until he returns. He says, well, all authority have been given to me, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he concludes it by saying, and remember, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is saying to these guys, don't worry, I'm in charge. I'm not only in charge of you guys. Um, you are my disciples. You are following me. I'm not only in charge of you guys. I'm in charge of everything in heaven and on earth. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And the more that we know and rely on these two truths in our lives, the more crystal clear we are about this is who Jesus is. He is the risen Lord in charge of everything, everywhere, all the time, and he's the one who is present with me. The more we know those things with clarity and conviction, the more your life will take on a completely different flavour. And the more God will do through your life things that you just go, wow, only God can accomplish that to make you a disciple and to help others to become disciples through you. The more you know and rely on these two truths by faith, the more you'll fulfill the Great Commission. Your life on life sharing with people will point them toward Jesus and it'll show people how great Jesus is and how uh, wonderful it is to follow him because you're experiencing that 24-7. When you know these truths, following Jesus is amazing. And if you remember from Acts chapter 1, as Carolyn read it out to us earlier, when the disciples were given the job to do, hey, you're going to be my witnesses here, and then a little bit further out, and a little bit further out, and right to the ends of the earth. Um, but what did Jesus say next? But don't do anything yet about what I've asked you to do. Why? Wait until the Holy Spirit comes to be with you. Wait until you've experienced my presence with you before you do anything that I've commanded you to do. Now... Holy Spirit has come. So we, we need to keep those, those things in mind. We need the, ex, the experience of the presence of God with us if we're going to recognise the authority of Jesus and do what he asks us to do. Because remember, we don't have a great commission because we're so great we can achieve it. Don't go and try and build God's kingdom for him after reading Matthew 28. Okay, I'm going to go make some disciples. No, no, no. Remember who's giving you the commission and recognising him in the midst of that is critical. Jesus is so great. He can achieve it even through people like us. What I've noticed over the years is that there are some Christians and there are even whole churches who tend to emphasise one of those verses more than the other. Either all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me or surely I'm present with you always. So there's these two things and they're not in any way in opposition. You know, they're not you know, at different ends of the spectrum. They're two complementary truths. They work together and they rely on each other. But sometimes in our fallenness, we emphasise this one more than that one or this one more than that one. And uh, I don't know if you've experienced that. And what it looks like uh, sometimes is, for example, some churches talk a lot more about what I know than what I feel, or they talk a lot more about what I feel than what I know. Um, some emphasise what I should do for God, and others emphasise what God will do for me. Some really focus heavily on the Bible, as getting to know what Jesus has said so that we can obey it. Some tend to focus more on the Holy Spirit. And we could talk a lot about those different tendencies in churches and what that's looked like in, in history, but uh, just think about how churches sing. That's often a good example. Um, you know, some churches sing with songs that have lots of verses full of great, fantastic truths. 
Now, uh, those songs emphasise what we know about God, right? There are other churches that sing songs with lots of repetition and cool chords and those sorts of things which touch more on your feeling. What's it like for me to be present in this moment worshipping God? But actually, they're not opposite at all. Because if you are singing a song full of wonderful truths about God, what's going to go on in your feelings? Man, you should be rejoicing and celebrating. You should really feel the presence of God because there's these amazing truths. And if you're uh, in, in a worship encounter where you're so conscious of the presence of God and thankful for God, what, what kind of hunger is it going to produce in you? I just want to know him more because he is so good and I'm experiencing what that feels like. So it's not as though they're in opposition in any way, but do you know what it's like to be part of those churches where they might be really good on the knowledge, but maybe they've neglected how to express that emotionally? And so while there should be this emotional response that says, wow, these truths are fantastic, it's almost this dry, you know, it's just recite the creed, you know, work through it, doesn't really touch my heart. Have you ever kind of experienced that? Or maybe you've experienced what it's like to be in a church where everyone's just super excited and really feeling it and it's all it's a wonderful thing and you're thinking, but I'm not hearing such a passion for talking about what God says and therefore what we should do about this. It's more about how it feels in the moment. And so we can kind of neglect one side or the other to our peril. Whereas the reality is we need to constantly be experiencing growth in both of those areas. Uh, let me give you a really simple um, illustration of the fact that you know, there will be times where we are more conscious of one than the other. We'll be more conscious of what God says and what we ought to do in response. Or we'll be more conscious of God's promises and how thankful we can be just to be blessed by him. There will be times where God's presence or his position might be more important to us. So I went to a church uh, several weeks ago and uh, over long service leave, it was a good opportunity just to go around to, um, to a bunch of places where I either knew people or I just thought, oh, I wonder what's going on out there. And so we, we rocked up to this church, never been there before. And uh, before we got there, there'd been some hard stuff that had happened and I was kind of churned up. You know that churning up where you, you wake up at night and that's it, you know, you're just thinking about it. Um, and you're reliving things um, and you're imagining things and it might be conversations or things that happen but there's just all this kind of stuff going on and that's kind of controlling your mood, it's controlling your conversations, your relationships. There's just this heaviness that comes sometimes and there's a million different reasons why we feel like that from time to time as we go through life. But that's, that's where I was at as I'd, I rocked up to this church. And uh, we get to the sermon and the pastor jumps up to preach and he's going through a series and people are loving the series and he gets up and he says, and the Bible reading's happened already and everyone's expecting you know, for the next message in the series to happen and he goes, Guys, I've got to admit something. I can't preach the passage I'm supposed to preach today. And he went on to explain that late the, the previous evening, he'd been doing some reading, uh, something just come across his attention, and it touched on the passage he was planning to preach on, and it's like, oh, no, I'm not actually sure that what I've prepared to say about this passage is really true to what God's trying to get across. Um, and so in his heart and his mind, he's really aware of the authority of Jesus. I don't want to do anything that is not in line with what Jesus says. Fantastic. And so he had the integrity to say to his congregation, you know what, I'm not going to preach what I'd prepared until I know this is exactly what Jesus wants from me. And it's exactly true of what he says in his word. So he had to kind of own up. So in his mind, in that moment, he's mainly thinking about Jesus is my king. He's the authority in my life. Um, all authority in heaven and earth is his. I need to be careful. I never, even accidentally, stray from what he said and what he wants to do. Brilliant. 
What did that mean for me in that moment, though? Because in that moment, um, as I said, I'd been wrestling with the stuff. The talk he'd pulled out of his kind of his archive that he'd done in a whole bunch of other places um, was a talk about struggle and suffering. And so for me, as much as I appreciated his heart in submitting to the authority of Jesus, what it showed me most clearly about Jesus is that he is present right now and he knows what we need. And maybe me or us were the only ones who needed it that day. Probably there was far more than that because he's very amazing in the way that he kind of weaves together what he's doing in people's lives. Um, and the pastor might have had no idea why he grabbed that particular talk other than I just need something I'm really familiar with. Um, so he might not have been aware of God actually using him and, and, and working through him in that moment. But God was there. He was present. He knew the journey that I was on. He knew what I needed in that moment. And that's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Yeah, I want you to go and live under my authority. Remember what I've told you. Obey it. Teach others to obey it. But it's not something you're doing on your own. That's not the only part of the story. I'm with you and I'm enabling you and I'm comforting you when you need comfort and I'm spurring you on when you need a bit of a kick in the pants. And I'm doing all of those things because I am present with you. And we've got to keep those both things in mind all of the time. It was such evidence of the sovereignty of God um, that, you know, why did we choose to go to that church that morning? I can tell you why, because Jesus is present and he knew how to get us to the place he wanted us to be. Why did the pastor happen to read this random article, uh, thesis from somewhere um, on the night he was going to preach that passage? Because Jesus was present and he was doing what he needs to do for his church, to grow it and build it. So rely on those two things. Now, what, what could life be like if we do neglect either of those things? See, when we emphasise the authority of Jesus, his position in our lives, but neglect his presence, we tend to get a bit legalistic, don't we? We tend to become very uh, arrogant, critical, judgmental about others, self-reliant, self-righteous. Well, after all, I know what Jesus says and I know what people should be doing and we're actually far from Jesus in terms of where his heart's at and what's really going on, but we think we're doing what is right. It reminds me of James and John. They're travelling down um, the path, uh, heading toward Jerusalem and uh, heading toward the crucifixion of Jesus, actually. And they're going through Samaria and uh, this village rejects Jesus, so they don't want to um, show hospitality at all. And they're like, how dare you treat the king of the world in this way? And so they say to Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven on these punks? Um, now, they were right. Those people ought to have treated Jesus you know, as the king of the world with greater respect. They shouldn't have responded in that way. But were they close to the heart of Jesus in that moment? Nowhere near it. And we can be a bit the same as well when we only emphasise his authority and forget his gracious presence in our lives. But on the flip side, if we're all about the gracious and good presence of God in our lives and we never um, wrestle with what it means to submit to his authority, what happens then? Well, we become really self-indulgent and our mantra becomes, well, God would want me to be happy. So we follow this flawed logic. By the way, that's true. God does want us to be happy, but God does not endorse what we think will make us happy. He tells us what will make us happy. That's a big difference. Uh, and so you've got this idea of, you know what, I don't need to worry so much about Christ's authority and what he said there. Um, that was different. I've got my own reasons and God would just want me to feel good. And that can tend to happen when we don't think enough about the authority of Jesus in our lives. And both those things are tragic. They lead to terrible consequences. To avoid that kind of faith, what do we need to do? We need to be just listening to who Jesus says that he is 
And what does he say to us as he sends us on the Great Commission? He says to us, he emphasises these two things. Hey, all authority is mine. Heaven on earth, I am the authority in life. Make everything revolve around me and what I've said. But also, don't think you can do it on your own. I am present with you. I'm a gracious, good God. No matter whether you're stuffing up or you know, going great, I am with you always. As Paul goes on to celebrate in Romans 8, can anything separate us from the love of God? No, it's not about how well we do. Jesus is present. doesn't rely on me, it relies on him. And when you rely on both of those things, when you recognise the authority of Jesus in your life and the presence of Jesus in your life, that's the only way to be a true disciple of Jesus. If you're stumbling a bit, just come back to this. If your life isn't looking like a disciple's life should look, come back to these two things. They'll help you get back on the right path. Seeing Jesus, making your life about Jesus individually and as a community will cause you to become part of the Great Commission, a disciple of Jesus who makes other disciples of Jesus. Let me kind of finish off by giving you one really small example of what that's looked like for me recently. Um, my language was getting worse. You know, there'd be things I get frustrated, I'd let out a word and it wasn't a great word. And I knew I shouldn't do that. You know, I know enough about what Jesus says about language to know that we shouldn't be using coarse language. Uh, if you're not sure of that, read um, Ephesians 5 or James 3, just as a couple of examples. Really clear about that. I, I, I'm somebody who knows the Bible reasonably well, and I know what I ought to be doing. But why does that stuff bubble out of me sometimes when I'm frustrated? And if in a f coarse language, which I know I shouldn't do, is bubbling out of me, what else that I know I shouldn't do might bubble out of me? in those moments of frustration, in how I treat others, or whatever the case might be. Not great. I'm not following Jesus the way I ought to be. And I, I confessed that to Carolyn just recently. Say, hey, I need you to pray for me with this. What do I need in that moment? And what's been helpful? It's the presence of Jesus in that moment. Now, if I'm aware of God's presence, then the fruit of the Spirit is stuff like love, joy, peace, patience, self-something. What is it? Self-control. Um, all of the things that are antithetical to that garbage. And when I am really conscious, not only of what Jesus says I ought to be about, but the fact that he's with me in every moment, then, I, then both of those things now start happening well. Now, for you, you might be the opposite. You might be very aware of the presence of Jesus in your life, but maybe you haven't taken time to get to know his commands and know specifically what he says. If you're my age and older, you're probably somebody who does more of the red and less of the yellow. If you're from a similar tradition and background, I am. We're not all from the same background, so that might not be true. But I tend to be much more aware of the authority of Jesus and what I ought to do, and I tend to be less aware of his presence and his help. If you're my age and younger, maybe it's the direct opposite. Or if you have a different background, you might really love focusing on the presence of Jesus, but you might not have actually been discipled to know what he says and to commit yourself, regardless of how it feels, to actually do it. And you've got to have both if you're going to be a mature follower of Jesus that makes disciples. Well, next week, we're going to get into what is this, what, what this going to look like to actually go about making disciples. But that foundation, I hope, will be helpful for you um, as we uh, look at that together. Let's pray. God, thank you that we have this wonderful summary at the end of the book of Matthew of who we are, who you are, and what we are to be about as individuals and as local churches. Lord, I thank you that being a disciple of Jesus never relies on us. It always relies on you. But it does take a certain commitment from us. So like those 11 men, we want to commit ourselves to making our community life and our own personal lives revolve around Jesus. 
revolving around what he's said to us, revolving around what he is doing amongst us. And Lord, having done that, thank you that we can do that with confidence because you have said all authority in heaven and on earth is yours. So in our circumstances, in how other people treat us, in anything that goes on in life, you will have your way. Help us to submit to that authority in our lives, I pray. And thank you that you've promised to be present with us, that we are never on our own, that we can never accomplish what you've called us to do on our own. Help us to be humble enough, but wise enough, to recognise your presence which you've promised us and to be changed from within as we do that. So God, would you show us if there's some areas in our lives where we're neglecting your authority or if there's some areas in our lives where we're uh, ignoring your presence and would you help us to address that today? Would you cause us to be the community that helps one another to address that? And I pray that as we do that, that you will enable us to form that amazing part of your work that you've called us to be, part of building your kingdom, making disciples of all nations, so that more people might experience the blessings of this life. Amen.